a great perspective, isn't it? I'll tell you that if you could just carve out a few minutes from your schedule one day soon, some of you have probably done this at one point or another in your life, and spend just a little time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes in silence, and just think about eternity. Think about living day after day after day after day forever. And then compare that with however many years you may have left on this earth. A few years, maybe a few dozen years in this life against the millions and millions and millions of unending years, as Chan said, in the other. Spend a few minutes in silence really thinking about that. And then ask yourself, which of those two lives, this one or the one that comes after it, which one does it make more sense for me to invest the most into? Which should I invest more time into, more passion into? Which should I invest more energy into? Which one should I invest my talents into? Should I spend the most time thinking about and planning for and preparing for? When you really take the time to actually think about that, the answer seems fairly obvious. Any economist and financial planner, any strategist, any investor will tell you that investing your resources into something that will take care of you for the long haul is far better than investing your resources into something that doesn't last. The answer is obvious. Investing for eternity is far better than investing for this temporary and comparatively brief life on earth. The Apostle Paul explained it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul's doing here, he's trying to offer us some perspective, you see, because he knew then what uh, is likewise today, a significant lack of perspective for those who only live for what is immediately gratifying, what makes us comfortable now, what feels the best in the moment without any significant reflection on the weightier matters that echo throughout all of eternity. Paul's saying as you live your life, don't get so caught up in the now that you miss the big picture. And anywhere that you find significant affluence, a lot of wealth and prosperity, you will find people who have lost their perspective. Because typically the more that we have, the more we try to cling to what we have, often at the expense of that which is to come. Which is why if you've ever been to a third world country and done any type of ministry work, you've seen the difference between people who are caught up in the momentary cares of this life and those who desperately seek only that which can give them eternal hope. I strung up a handful of light bulbs powered by a little tiny generator in the bush of Central America and began playing music through a loudspeaker and watched people pour in literally for hours from many miles away, some of them who either heard the worship music or they heard that there were Christians who had come there to talk to them about eternity. Why would they do that? Because they had nothing to cling to in this life. They were not captured by this world. They were not overly impressed by this world because many of them had Jesus and little else. They knew that he was all that they needed because in perspective they understood that all of this is temporary. 
And yet, the hope that, that they have in Christ is something far more valuable. It's something with far more heft. It's much weightier. Why? Because it's eternal. And yet, here in America, uh, man, you'd better have your act together when you hang a sign out that says church service tonight on it. You'd better have something that will capture people's imaginations and tantalize their senses, or for the most part, they just won't come. There's still enough tradition here for many people that they will attend church on a Sunday morning, but trying to get folks out on an evening service can be really tough in this culture because there's just so many other things that people would rather do with their time, and understandably so. We're overloaded with options that are far more entertaining than sitting in a room listening to some guy talk. I get it. But in very poor countries, you can have a church service literally every single night of the week for weeks and weeks on end. And the crowds won't decrease in size over time. They actually swell because the same people come back night after night. And each time they come back, they bring more people with them because they're desperate for Christ. They're desperate to learn about Christ, to study the word and to fellowship and pray and worship with other believers. And so the challenge for us in this very affluent and very, uh, quite frankly, distracting Western culture is to be able to maintain some perspective, to constantly consider the big picture, the, the eternal story that is playing out, even as we're constantly bombarded with the cares of this life, the momentary afflictions, as Paul says, the fleeting riches that we tend to amass in wealthy cultures. And it's really easy to do. It's easy to get tunnel vision, to focus more on the microcosm of our own daily routine, our own little world, and miss the eternal work that God has assigned for us, before we were born, by the way, which carries with it eternal rewards. And so as we continue this sermon series today, we're working our way through the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about the big picture as we see Daniel living and working and flourishing in ancient Babylon, which our culture uh, incidentally reflects in so many ways today, and yet he never seems to lose sight of the big picture, the, the eternal story and his part in it, and the result of that is we see Daniel as a constant in Babylon, year after year, being used very effectively by God, even as the leaders and religious and governments and culture were constantly changing around him because Daniel never chased after the temporary fleeting pleasures of this life. He always sought after God and God's will first. And so, obviously, first of all, it can be done. It is possible to live in an affluent culture and flourish at the highest level spiritually within that culture and still faithfully serve God. But that requires a seriously disciplined prayer life. It requires a seriously disciplined prayer life, which was a hallmark, by the way, of Daniel's life, which we'll see next week. And it requires a heavy dose of eternal perspective, which is what we're talking about this morning. This should really be an anchor for each of us in our lives today in this culture so that no matter how shiny or attractive whatever happens to be right in front of us at any given moment may be, we always view everything in the context of the big picture, God's eternal 
picture and our part in that. So let's pick up our story where we left off last week at the beginning of uh, Daniel chapter 5, where we enter into a completely new scene here in the continuing saga. And it's a very different set of circumstances for Daniel than we've seen thus far. We've just come out of four chapters uh, of Daniel's life with Nebuchadnezzar. And now, very abruptly, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. And we're introduced to this new ruler, Belshazzar, who happens to be a de facto king. In truth, he's not the, the real king, as we'll see. And it bothers some historians that Daniel's account doesn't give us more detail about the events of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that precipitated the major shift that we see in the story here. But keep in mind, Daniel's primary goal in his writing is not to give an account of the history of Babylon. Right? His main purpose is to communicate the faithfulness and sovereignty of God over his people in captivity and along the way to highlight the faithfulness and commitment of some of those people in God's bigger picture. But fortunately, for those of us who are curious about those events, and I always am, we do have uh, many reliable historical records that give accounts of that period of time between these two rulers. So quickly, just to fill in the gap... There was 23 years that passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel. There's an ancient historian, uh, Barosus. He recorded that Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after a 43-year reign, serving God at the end of his reign. And then his son, this is his actual name, Evil Merodic. Uh, you can read about him in 2 Kings, if you like, chapter 25, uh, verses 27 through 30. And then Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34 mentions him as well. He ruled for only two years after Nebuchadnezzar, and then he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neraglisser. It's a very nice family. Nereglisser, who is mentioned a couple of times in Jeremiah 39, if you want to check him out, he ruled for about four years, and then he died a natural death. His son, Labashi Marduk, who was just a child when he became heir to the throne, ruled for about a month, some say as long as nine months, and then he was beaten to death by a gang of conspirators. The conspirators then appointed Nabonidus, one of their own gang members, to be king. And he ruled until Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon, which seems to conflict with the account here in chapter 5, which tells us that Belshazzar was king uh, when Cyrus conquered Babylon, which, which caused historians and archaeologists for a long time to assert that the biblical account was incorrect. They would say that Belshazzar never actually existed because we have no record of him. And it was just a made-up story. He was a made-up figure in the Bible. And then in 1854, the cylinders of Nabonidus were discovered at the corners of the temple of the moon god Sin in the city-state of Ur. And uh, we've got some pictures of those. They're cuneiform inscriptions in clay cylinders that were used as records for Babylonia. So they would keep the record keeping of the city and the history inscribed in cuneiform on these clay cylinders. And that's how they would store them. These aren't all of them, but they're representative of the ones they found. They're in, uh, on display in a British museum today. The beautiful thing about these clay cylinders, and since their discovery, we've actually unearthed many additional cuneiform records from Babylon, which in addition to these cylinders all corroborate. They confirm and in fact even expand our knowledge of this de facto king named Belshazzar. And yet it's another score for biblical authenticity confirmed by archaeological sciences. Love it. 
So it turns out, as we now know, that Belshazzar was the eldest son of Nabonidus. And although there are a couple of different varying, slightly varying accounts about what happened to Nabonidus, we know that he was either captured and held by the Persians at the time that the events of chapter 5 occurred, or he was exiled by the Persians. But either way, when chapter 5 was actually happening, the true king, Nabonidus, was still alive. And Belshazzar, his son, who was his co-regent, was acting as king in Nabonidus' absence, which also explains some of the other details that we'll see in a few moments as we go that initially seem odd, but they make perfect sense when you understand the historical sequence of the events that we have now in these records. So with all of that in our pocket now, let's pick up the story at chapter 5, and we'll read the first four verses to start. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, at first glance, it, it seems like Belshazzar is simply throwing this huge party uh, just because he can, which wouldn't have been uncommon uh, for a king at this time period. But as we dig a little deeper again into the historical accounts surrounding these events, uh, and particularly the text that we have here, there's actually some much more compelling reasons for this big event that Belshazzar is having, not only for all of his favorite people at the palace, but for the entire city of Babylon. There is a huge throwdown party going on right now in the city at this point. I mean, everybody is partying to the max. And we'll, we'll see more of that here in a moment. But just before we get into that, I want to point out that in several places throughout the chapter as we read, including verse 2 that we just looked at, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's father, as you may have noticed. He was definitely not Belshazzar's father paternally, okay? The Aramaic word for father that's used uh, is the word av. It's spelled A-B, but it's pronounced av, uh, which was often used in Aramaic, just as the, the word father in Hebrew was used to refer to uh, an ancestor or often a predecessor, someone that they were not even related to. And some scholars have tried to make the case that uh, that there was an actual distant family uh, relation by marriage between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. There could have been. We don't know for certain, but what he was definitely not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So either way, the word father in this chapter is referring to Nebuchadnezzar as the predecessor, uh, the king before Belshazzar. And it's significant that Belshazzar is referring to Nebuchadnezzar here because there were several other kings in between them. Why go back to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he was the preeminent and most revered of all the Babylonian kings of all time. So any time a later king could tie himself in any way to Nebuchadnezzar and his reputation, he would because it would make him look better to do so. It's like the Republicans today. When you hear them campaigning, they'll bring up Ronald Reagan, right? They want to invoke the image and, and the, uh, the admiration that people have for Ronald Reagan. Democrats do it with JFK, right? It's something that people do. They want to try and tie themselves to someone who is universally respected. He's doing the same thing here, Belshazzar, when he brings up Nebuchadnezzar. But uh, he, he brings in the vessels 
that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple. So it's the same thing. He's trying to show these lords, um, all of these people in the palace, that Nebuchadnezzar stormed in uh, and took these elements out of the, the Jewish temple some 70 years earlier. Why is he doing all of this big song and dance during the party? On this fateful night of the events in chapter 5, all of the territory surrounding the city of Babylon and all of the related provinces had already been conquered by Persia. And only the city of Babylon with its massively thick, over 20 foot thick fortified walls remained free from the Persians. But make no mistake, they were there at the very moment this party was happening and camped all around the city trying to figure out a way to come in and conquer this final stronghold. In fact, the Babylonians, the city, they had over 20 years of supplies stored up within the city so they could just stay in there and wait out the, the, those who were trying to attack them. So <clears throat> consider that they're inside the walls of the city. Persia, the now most powerful army in the world, is surrounding the city, trying to come in. In fact, some historians and scholars believe now that Nabonidus was actually being held captive by the army that was encamped outside the city gates while this party was being held. So you consider these extremely dangerous and imminent circumstances for Babylon. What does the almost King Belshazzar do when his city is surrounded and attack is imminent? He throws a huge party. It's the very definition of hubris. Arrogance, overwhelming arrogance and self-confidence that would prove in the end to be self-defeating. And so verse 1 says, Belshazzar drank wine at the party in front of the thousand. He was trying to impress all of these lords because they were nervous. These are some of them military men. They knew better. They knew that attack was imminent. And he's trying to reassure them by standing up on the platform and drinking wine in front of them to show them that they had nothing to worry about. Instead of going out to defend the city, the arrogant second in charge throws the party and he drinks wine in front of his guests to try and reassure them that everything's going to be okay. But it wasn't working because he then orders the vessels from the temple to be brought in. He, he's reminding all of these lords and other guests of the greatness of Babylon by reminding them of the past exploits of the great Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered the Israelite people and was able to empty out the most sacred temple of their great God. He says, don't you remember when we did this? Bring those vessels in here. Let me show you. And so confident of his position, Belshazzar begins to desecrate these sacred vessels by drinking his wine out of them in front of all these people. This is the insanity of the world without God. And to be honest, it's not much different than today. Ultimate destruction according to the word of God, is right outside the gates. The enemy is constantly prowling around to see who he can destroy and the world is content to throw a party and pretend that they're just fine without God. And it's nothing new. We see it here in Babylon. It existed all the way back to Cain and Abel. Genesis 4-7, the Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And of course we know he didn't rule over it. And he paid the consequences for not heeding the word of God. 
This is very much a part of the big picture. The big picture that we should always keep in view anytime we become overly enamored with this world because this world, like it or not, is headed for destruction. The enemy is right outside the gates and he's looking for a way in. And it is only the mercy and grace of God that longs for all men to be saved that is keeping that final trumpet from sounding in the last days at bay. Okay, we, we who follow Christ, we don't belong to this world. Let's not lose sight of that part of the big picture when the world wants to throw a big party and flaunt its arrogance before a holy God and pretend that everything is just fine because everything is not fine. In Philippians 3, 17 through 20, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world will constantly tell you. In fact, the world is constantly screaming that everything is just fine as it desecrates the sacred things of God. But everything is not fine. Don't allow yourself to be sucked into the party because we don't belong to the party. We belong to Him. We are His sacred vessels now. We're to remain set apart for Him. Daniel got this. He got it. He understood this perfectly, as we'll see. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 9. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed. I guess it did. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Notice that when Belshazzar offers a reward for anyone who can interpret the writing, he offers them the position of third place in charge of the kingdom. Of course, the, the reason is that he was second place in charge of the kingdom, as the true king Nabonidus was either in exile or in captivity, but still very much alive, and so the true king. And despite this generous offer to become third in line of the rulers of Babylon, just as we've seen in previous episodes with Nebuchadnezzar, none of the best and brightest within the kingdom can interpret God's message until they find Daniel. Let's keep reading. As Belshazzar is coming unglued at this point, he's desperate for answers. Verses 10 through 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. 
Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So the queen hears about all the commotion. She comes in to reassure Belshazzar that there is one who can help. And the queen here, by the way, is most likely uh, referring to the queen mother, not one of Belshazzar's wives. Uh, as the, as uh, it says in verse 2, that Belshazzar's lords, wives, and concubines were already at the party. And yet here in verse 10, uh, it says the queen came into the banqueting hall when she heard about what had happened. So she's not among, uh, numbered among his wives. Also, the word for wife or, or wives in verse 2 in the Aramaic is the word shegal. It refers specifically to a queen wife. All right, But the word queen here in verse 10 is the Aramaic word uh, malka. It's a distinctly different word that can refer to a queen or any queen, not necessarily a wife of the current king. And so in this specific instance, there's fairly widespread agreement amongst scholars and researchers that this was in fact the queen mother. Older, wiser, not so much interested in her son's drunken party, sort of a been there, done that deal. This is a seasoned uh, lady. So she, she wasn't there from the beginning at the party, but she'd been around the kingdom a while and she remembered the deeds of Daniel quite well. He'd been very famous and highly respected during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, which she obviously remembers because she describes Daniel using the exact same words as Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 11. She said to Belshazzar, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Exactly how Nebuchadnezzar describes Daniel three different times back in chapter 4. And so this older, wiser, experienced mother comes onto the scene and as mothers so often do, she takes a hold of the situation, she grabs the reins, she, she calms all the boys down, and she gives the best advice that could be given in that moment. She says, you go get the man who has the Spirit of God living in him, because he will know what to do. So they go and fetch Daniel, and they bring him into the party. Let's see what happens, verses 13 through 17. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. And now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with a purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. That is a very insightful response by Daniel. First of all, he clearly does not have the relationship with Belshazzar that he had with Nebuchadnezzar. As Belshazzar says, oh, you're that Daniel. I've heard about you. One of the guys that Nebuchadnezzar brought from Judah. In other words, I've heard about you guys, but I don't really know you. So uh, he obviously didn't think to call for Daniel on his own. So it's a bit of an introduction between them. And after the king explains why he's called Daniel, he offers him respect, honor, gold, a position as third in charge of Babylon. This is no small deal. And yet Daniel's response speaks volumes. He says, keep your stuff. I'm not interested 
and I'm not impressed, but I will interpret the dream. Obviously, Daniel feels very differently about this king than he did about Nebuchadnezzar. But even more significantly, Daniel's response here, and it's the first point in our outline, his response is a clear indicator that Daniel's heart was not captured by this world. His heart did not belong to this world because he had a big picture perspective. So he didn't allow himself to become so enamored with whatever shiny thing or tempting promise was right in front of him at any given moment. And this was a big shiny thing, a big promise. So all of the affluence and pagan pleasures and opportunities for advancement and power and influence never swayed Daniel because the culture never captured his heart. Why? Because his heart was already spoken for. It already belonged to someone else. He could see the bigger picture because he saw the world through the eyes of God. And instead of all the glitz and glamour in that culture that he was surrounded by, Daniel saw great spiritual sickness. He saw the desperate need in people for a holy, loving God to repair and restore and redeem them. And he was captivated by that. He was captivated by that to the point that when he's invited to the party of the century at the king's palace of all places and offered riches and power and influence, he turns it down because he could, he could see the big picture. He knew that what was right in front of him was temporary. And Daniel was far more interested in what was eternal, which meant honoring God first and fulfilling God's purposes in his life first, even when that meant denying himself or his own desires. And so I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves, what captivates me? What holds my heart? What gets me going in the morning? What keeps my attention? What motivates me more than anything else? Because if the answers to those questions are rooted in anything other than the relationships and purposes that are found in Christ, that are defined by Jesus Christ in our relationship with Him, then I fear we're missing the big picture. God designed and created us, first of all, to be in fellowship with Him before all others. And we see that right from the beginning of the creation story in Genesis. Secondly, He created us to realize a much greater purpose for Him than anything that this world in the present culture could ever hope to offer us. So why do we sell ourselves short by settling for something inferior to God's design and purpose for our lives? Why would we do that? It's because we get caught up we allow our hearts to be captured by this culture and everything that's happening around us. And I, and I know the allure of this world can be very powerful. It can be a motivating force in your, in your life. There have been times, certainly in my life, when my heart was captured by this world. I get it. But what we have to allow to sink in I mean, to the, the deepest sense of our understanding, and it's counterintuitive. I know, but it's pure truth, is that living for ourselves and our own desires first is actually the most self-defeating thing that we can do in this life. We talked about this a little bit last week. The greatest single act that you could ever take for your own self-interest is actually to live your life for someone else. For Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. The fact that this life is just a temporary blip on the radar and then comes the rest of eternity that never ends as Chan said in the video and yet the way to set ourselves up 
in the best possible way for the rest of eternity is to give away every part of ourselves to God and to others during this little blip of time that we're living in now. That goes against our grain. It goes against our, our nature. But that's big picture perspective. It's investing for the long term, not the short term. It's denying yourself that which may bring some pleasure now for an eternity of pleasure that comes later. It's like the commercials. If you've ever seen the guy, the investment firm commercials, and he's walking along the sidewalk and there's a path illuminated before him for his long-term investments, and he stops at the storefront and looks in at this shiny new car, and he starts to daydream about what it would be like if he had that car but he denies himself that immediate gratification and instead he stays on the path of long-term investment because he knows that what is to come is far better than what is right in front of him. He sees the big picture and likewise, look, God has laid out a path before every single one of us and to stay on that path we will at times have to deny ourselves the temporary pleasures of this life instead keeping our hearts fixed on Christ and on his purposes in us. I've told you before, I'm infinitely happier now than I've ever been at any other time in my life. I make less money now than I have in a long time. I live in a much smaller house than I have for a long time. I drive an old, fairly beat up truck, a lot older than a car I've driven for a long time. I can't buy the things I used to. I can't do the things I used to. I can't go the places that I would always like to go. But my heart isn't captured by those things anymore. And so even though I may not be chasing everything that the world would like to offer me, I'm infinitely happier and more fulfilled now because I'm following after that which has my heart. It's Jesus Christ and the plans that he has for me and the plans that he has for my family and the plans that he has for my church and the plans that he has for my ministry. Those are the places that I would far rather go today because it's spiritual attainment over material attainment. It's eternal reward over temporary reward. It's big picture perspective and it will make you, I, I'm telling you, it will make you far, far happier when you let go of the temporary pleasures and pressures of this life and allow your heart to be completely captured by Christ and his good plans for you. Sometimes when we do that, our lives change drastically. I'll just be honest with you. It isn't always an easy transition to make. And it, it doesn't always make sense to the world. In fact, you may even look foolish. When I shut down two businesses and sold my homes and campers and motorcycles and trucks and boats and packed my family up and moved 5,000 miles to Alaska into a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment inside a church, there were some people that thought I was an idiot. I looked pretty foolish to the world, but it didn't matter. Because when you do that, your heart doesn't belong to the world anymore. And you find a fulfillment and a happiness that you never imagined possible. And the world won't understand because those who are lost without Christ cannot see the big picture. And of course, it's our job to try and show it to them through our very different looking lives. 
You see, our, our lives ought to look very different from the status quo of our culture. And that's what big picture living looks like. It's a bunch of really, really happy people. Really fulfilled people who confound the world because our lives make no sense to them, but they reflect an understanding and a realization of something that transcends life on this earth. And man, if anybody ever got that, it was Daniel. He was the poster child for big picture living. He tasted the very best of culture under Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, responded to Daniel's ministry by turning his life to God. And yet under the leadership of this sacrilegious king, Belshazzar, who was all too willing to desecrate the sacred things of God, Daniel refused to accept the pleasures offered to him by the king because his heart was captured by something far better. Let's keep reading verses 18 through 29. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dwelt uh, proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> After a brief history lesson and a very clear explanation of the king's own sin, Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. And rather than a prophetic warning such as received by Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, which was a warning because Nebuchadnezzar was given an opportunity to repent and rectify the situation before the dream was fulfilled, Belshazzar is given no such opportunity. So rather than a warning, this is more of a, a prophetic promise. It's a declaration of what is about to happen to Belshazzar and his kingdom. And what he and probably even Daniel couldn't have predicted was the immediacy uh, of the fulfillment of the writing on the wall. The writing was Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parsin. And, and Perez, by the way, in verse 28 is uh, simply the singular of Parsin. These were known Aramaic words. In fact, they were common Aramaic words. You see, it wasn't that the king and the wise men were unable to actually read them. They could read them just fine. The problem was that they didn't understand what they meant in regards to Belshazzar and Babylon. 
So when it says they couldn't read the message, it means they couldn't glean their understanding from it that they were looking for, okay? So the writing was a sequence of weights decreasing from a mina to a shekel to a half shekel. And if you read it as verbs, if you read the sequence as verbs, it's literally translated as numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And Daniel, of course, by divine revelation, knew that the Lord had numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and brought it to an end because he'd been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And the repetition, interestingly enough, of the word numbered in the translation is a suggestion that this is about to happen very quickly. It's imminence, okay? And of course, it did. Let's read the the final verse now of chapter 5, as we'll see. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, the very same night that the supernatural message was delivered and translated, it was also fulfilled. And uh, by the way, uh, if you're the least bit interested in history, and particularly military history, the account, (laughs) the historical account of how the Persians were actually able to take this city is absolutely stunning. It is worth your time. We don't have time to go through it today, and it's not really pertinent to the message here anyway, but basically, in short, the Persians, by just the most brilliant strategy and execution, were able to lower the flow of the Euphrates River. So the, the Euphrates ran through the center of Babylon. And it entered in one side of the city and went out the other and ran right through the middle. And so the walls came right down to the top of this fast-flowing, wide, deep river. No one could get through there. But the Persians were able to lower the flow of the water so that it was about thigh deep. And the soldiers simply waded in through the river under the walls of the city, half of the army on one side and the other half on the opposite side. And at the time that was happening... The entire city was throwing a party at night, not just the royals, which is why no one noticed the water level dropping until it was too late. And the strategy behind that you read in the historical account is just fantastic. Herodotus, he's an ancient Greek researcher, at the end of a very detailed account you can read of this whole siege. It's a long account of exactly what happened. At the very end, he wrote these words, I'm quoting, It is related by the people who inhabited the city. In other words, this is a first-hand account. That by reason of its great extent, when they who were at the extremities were taken, those of the Babylonians who inhabited the center knew nothing of the capture, for it happened to be a festival. But they were dancing at the time and enjoying themselves till they received certain information of the truth, and thus Babylon was taken for the first time. That must have been a heck of a party. The city is under siege, being overthrown, and they don't even know it's being attacked. What a picture of this world that we live in, and particularly our culture today. We're being assaulted by the enemy while we dance and sing and party our hearts content. We're so busy enjoying the temporary pleasures of this world that we don't recognize the damage that is being done and the ground that is being lost every day all around us. And yet, with all of the turmoil and upheaval and destruction and uncertainty throughout the history of this great city, Babylon, Daniel was a constant figure unwavering in his devotion and commitment to God because his heart was not captured by this world and because because of that Daniel's life was not subject to this world all right Belshazzar's kingdom was headed for destruction but Daniel didn't belong to Belshazzar's kingdom 
He belonged to God's kingdom. This world is headed for destruction. We do not belong to this world. We belong to God. And so just as Daniel was able to remain and even flourish in Babylon's best times and worst times because his joy and purpose and fulfillment was not dependent upon his circumstances or the approval of the culture around him, we too can flourish in every circumstance, in every battle, in every hard time in our lives. Even when the world says we're crazy, and they call us foolish or narrow-minded when we refuse to allow our hearts to be captured by this life. And instead, we devote ourselves completely to Christ. We no longer live in subjection to this world or the culture or the circumstances that we face. Daniel remained constant and unmoved regardless of his position in society, which changed drastically over the years. In fact, next week... We'll see him under this new regime right back on top, at least for a while. Lots of highs and lows in Daniel's remarkable life. But regardless of what the world threw at him, no matter what the world threw at Daniel, God had a good and constant plan for him. And so it didn't matter what was happening around him because God's sovereign plan was going to be fulfilled in Daniel's life as he remained committed to God above all else and in, through every circumstance in his life. This is big picture living. Understanding that God does have a good plan for your life and no circumstance or attack of the enemy or resistance from the world can ever change one single moment of that good plan for you. You just have to choose to walk in it every day. You have to choose to see the big picture even when things become uncomfortable and, and hard. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared, by the way, beforehand, before we were here, that we should walk in them. In what is in them? It's the good works that He prepared for us before we were even born. His plan for you has already been made. And as you choose Him and His plan first, every single day, that good plan, that good plan is going to unfold in your life just as He designed it to, regardless of what hell may be trying to come against you at any given moment. That's a fact. Daniel is proof of that. Because his heart was not captured by this world. And therefore his life was not subject to this world. That's the big picture for all of us today. What God has planned out for you in your life. Long before you were even born. Is so infinitely better and more fulfilling. And more exciting and more adventurous. And more meaningful than anything anything this world can ever dangle in front of your face. But what happens is, the world dangles shiny things. Alluring things. Tempting things. Right in front of our face. And it's so close, it's all that we can see. But if we'll just take a step or two back. Just step back for a moment away from the world and allow your vision to expand. You'll begin to see the big picture, which is God's picture for your life. 
And all of a sudden, that shiny new thing won't matter to you at all. Because I'm telling you, once your eyes lay hold of the life that God has planned for you, once your eyes lay hold of that plan, you will want nothing else. That's the big picture. And it couldn't get any better. Let's pray.